Welcome to the Digital Dudes Podcast. I'm David. I'm Reed. And Reed, a couple of weeks ago now, because we've had some time off, we recorded an interview with Apley, uh, so Cena over there. Um, do you even remember what we talked about? What did we talk about? We covered a lot, which I knew we would, but we spent a lot of time just on the kind of prop tech uh, universe and, you know, the, the tectonic shifts, the things that we don't like, the things that we're encouraged by. And then, of course, some specifics about Apple. And then he paid us a lot of really nice compliments as far as what we're doing with Fiona. Um, but there was also some great business talk in there, if I remember right, just about building companies and stuff. So I think, you know, I don't want to go as far as man crush, but yeah, I'm I'm quickly become or have become a big Santa fan. I think he's yeah. awesome. Great for the industry. Great perspective. I think he was like told us he's like the 46th or something employee at Salesforce. So yeah, you get the full gamut with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to have like five or six more podcasts before it's all over with, with Cena. But uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so did I. I think that's probably the third or fourth time I've talked to him. And I remember the first time I really felt like uh, immediate connection. And then that's why I uh, got you on when we were over at uh, NAA. I guess we had a quick, mm-hmm. a quick chat with him. Talked to him in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, in the lobby of our hotel. Uh, yeah. And then uh, and then obviously got him on. So I can't wait for the, ne- for the next one, but definitely a kindred spirit. And uh, you're right. Like he talked us through a little bit, his transition from Salesforce into um, his first company, Oh my God, of course, like I told, I just said on the other podcast, I stopped caffeine and it's making my brain Build, real bad. Did it have Buildium? Buildium. No, Buildium was a competitor. It had, I thought it had Build in it. God, that's pathetic. Whatever, got bought by RealPage. Then he's with RealPage for longer than he was building that company. And uh, RealPage IPOs, and then he leaves and starts Apple. Well, real quick on the RealPage stop, uh, I appreciated, you know, I guess the praise, honesty, he throughout about the company, Steve Wynn, mm-hmm. you know, for all the, uh, I guess, negative kind of criticism, stereotypes, if you will, um, that have, have been built over the years about that company. Um, you know, he really had a lot of positive things to say, which I appreciated. <clears throat> yeah, I was really pleased to hear that. And it's funny because Nicole and I were having this conversation this weekend, maybe because um, we've been reading the the Simon Tennant book, the, the, infinite game but the the line of conversation was when you're uh, when you're the upstart and uh you know you're the underdog everyone's rooting for you and your first customers are like yeah i hope you do well i hope you crush it and at some point you become you're you break out of that and you become more of the established right like a real page so i can imagine they must have had customers that are rooting for them then they get so big that all of a sudden now the tides turn and people are no longer rooting for you. Mm-hmm. They're like, why don't you have this figured out and this fixed? And I was uh, telling the Coles, like, when have we started to make that transition? Or uh, when is it going to hit us to where people go from like really having our back to really like being critical of everything? And I'd say internally, it feels more like our culture internally has been, or the, the, uh, our employees have gone from rooting to more of like critical of like, what don't we have figured out yet? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder externally, when will that happen? And to be clear, everyone internally, it's all coming from a good place of like, hey, we should figure this out. We should figure that out. And it's all stuff that we obviously want to figure out. But as you continue to grow quickly, a lot of times you outgrow how fast you can figure out X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, know, I don't know if that's a good jumping off point for you, but I just wonder when we're going to, uh, the outside world is going to look at us that way. I too. think that would be actually a great, uh, springboard with Cena for another conversation because I'm sure he has some some great perspective on that. But I have felt that more and more, and I think you're right internally, but 
coming from a great place, psychological safety. It's like, you know, you said you wanted to, to hear the truth. We're mm-hmm. giving it to you, you know? And, um, but on the outside, I think a lot of it does have to do with like the whole acquisition thing and potentially some of the clientele that, that, you know, we work with or we'll be working with, you know, can, can affect that. Um, but for the most part, I feel like as long as you stay independent, you know, and aren't wed to, which is one of the hardest things to do, right? S- certain partners where it's like, in, in any part of the ecosystem, like I'll just, since it, we're not as far along with this category or subcategory, I'll use AI leasing agents, but we're not like a meet a lease shop. We're not a perk shop. We're not a better bot shop, you know? So I think as long as we can stay, you know, fairly agnostic um, in, in that manner, most of the time people will be rooting for us, but uh, we'll see. <clears throat> That's a good point because back when we first got into the industry, I feel like the conversation I was hearing was Intrada versus Yardy, and people were really happy with Intrada and how open they were uh, versus their their impressions with Yardy. Now, uh, now Appfolio has released their version. More folks have been able to get in with Yardy and RealPage, still not as easy, but uh, Intrada started to get criticized for other things that they weren't uh, like legacy systems. They weren't fixing like reporting where it's like, well, yeah, they're open, but you know, it's really is annoying to do this, this and that. So um, I think you're right. Like there's probably going to be aspects where people are more critical than other aspects. The question will be how much, and that's a great conversation for us to have with, you know, whether on air or off air of like, how do you, how can you best postpone that and avoid it? Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, I guess get to almost like where Apple is, where Apple was the, you know, sort of the rebel. And then they were like the incumbent and they sort of fell from grace. And then they like came back again where people are rooting for them. Uh, and now I start to hear again, almost like, they're the downside of like, well, what have they invented? You know, what innovation have they come out recently? So, uh, I, I'm going to plug one more time. Cause there's so much it's six hour, maybe seven book, the infinite game that you and I are spending a lot of time on, but he talks about ethical fading. And I think mm. that's one of those, um, I guess signals, um, that, that you want to look for like meeting and, and running a company, whether it's yourself or whether it's around you that could heavily compromise um how people view view your brand or it's like you're really now kind of abusing your power um it was easy like the insulin example i think it was insulin you know Mm -hmm. but where it's like well now this is four times as expensive and you know we could keep going and it was all clearly for for their own benefit epipen epipen thank you yeah they raised the price of epipen 400 percent. i was reading about five years insulin for something else because republicans (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll just gonna yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it was EpiPen, right? So we we've talked just as an example, and then you know we can wrap this up this intro, but about a you know, platform fee, mm-hmm. you know, and we've kind of hung our hat for first five years, no fees, no startups, mm-hmm. no this, but I think we could rationalize, like look at mm-hmm. all that we've brought to the table, and you and I have had that conversation, and I haven't been totally against it, but. You know, mostly I'd like us to avoid that, but that would just be an example of Digibles now starting to abuse its power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, that's really hard. To, uh, the part of the conversation why that pops up is like if you haven't figured out how to fully monetize something mm-hmm. and all the work that goes into it. So I'll just say Yardy and RealPage, they build integrations probably at the beginning because people need them to connect to their other systems because they're not full stack. And then you build it and you realize, shoot, we're spending all this dev work maintaining these integrations for these other partners that are making money on top of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess we should monetize that. But that would be similar to like Windows or something, charging every like... uh 
program like a fee to like be built on top of windows exactly and that's not what gates decided to do right. it was like it was free like we built the system yes there's going to be some snags here or there uh but that's what we built the system for so yep yeah it's a it's a toughie well anyways uh the conversation with Christina was awesome can't wait for the next one hope you guys enjoy Okay, we're here with Sina, founder of Aptly. Sina, why don't you give us a brief background and introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Sina Sheku, and I'm the founder, co-founder of Aptly, uh, prior co-founder of Propertyware and uh, early employee at Salesforce. Um, you know, had a very kind of interesting long run in property tech, which now actually has a label, which back then it didn't. Uh, family in real estate here in Northern California, kind of the accidental entrepreneur that built a software product just to help my folks manage their uh, portfolio of properties when we were using Yardi. And um, no disrespect to them, but needed something that was more web-based and kind of started building a software as a service product, which turned into about a seven-year love affair that... Uh, ultimately ended up in an acquisition by RealPage and a subsequent IPO and then going on and uh, building a startup within an enterprise company, which was kind of an interesting experience. But uh, back at it again now and working on a, a new startup called Aptly. Yeah, I, I think we got acquainted with you sometime like at the, towards the end of last year and immediately in our first conversation, I was like, shoot, this uh, seen as a, a fellow I want to spend more time with because I just it just was such a fun conversation. Um, but I didn't realize before until uh, one of our most recent conversations, I guess, your your long background, as you're saying, from Propertyware, and it didn't click until you sent us a few notes ahead of this uh, ahead of today about you uh, have, going through the, the IPO process after getting acquired. So I think it'd be fun just to hear a little bit about that. And then I just say, I guess, as a quick aside, I, I guess you're one of those examples that everyone talks about. Like, once you get into property management, you can never get out. Because, like, I mean, yeah. unless you met, did you mean to ever get out, or was like eventually we were like, yeah. oh no, I did. I actually did. Um, so there's two good questions in there. Uh, I'll answer the first one, which was, you know, like how did I get into it in the first place? I, you know, I was in this really interesting era of software where I was working at Oracle. And at the time, uh, people were all kind of shifting around and going to, you know, these exciting new startups. And Mark Benioff, who was a pretty eccentric and interesting guy who had big ideas, had approached a bunch of folks about building a software as a service CRM. And I was selling CRM back then at Oracle and it didn't work and it was terrible. Um, and along comes Mark with this idea about, you know, a web-based CRM solution that was really simple. and you know, fast forward through that ride, you know, saw what it took to build a software as a service company um, and get it to the scale that it was. But all along in the background, my family business has always been in real estate. And so I was really interested in why software as a service never made it to real estate. And um, so looked up my extremely talented better half, Adam Silverthorne, which is my co-founder and said, Hey man, we should, we should build some software for these poor people. They are suffering with horrible, you know, uh, you know, install software sitting on windows machines or, you know, ASP software. And so, 
Uh, those are weird terms that nobody even talks about anymore. But anyways, <laughs> prop tech became a thing through this constant kind of investment by um, entrepreneurs who had some connection into this industry and wanted to innovate, but there wasn't any money that was willing to give you the chance to do that. So, you know, back in, you know, the OG days of prop tech, you had to kind of bootstrap it through these horrible you know, long cycles of trying to build a business with people who are a hate technology and B. I mean, there was a time when people didn't want to put their stuff in the cloud because they were afraid the government would come <laughs> see their information. I mean, we went through all this kind of stuff. Um, but the reason why you stick with it is because there's truly something to be said about doing your time and understanding an industry. And I got a really good taste of that after the whole journey of building property where, you know, being part of real page, going public, and then deciding uh, afterwards, I want to build a travel startup and understanding that that was a horrible idea because it takes so much time to understand an industry and then being humble to go back and do what you know. Well, uh, I'm going to cover for Reed here for a second. I feel like he swallowed a fly. Um, he's, he's like, he's hacking on the side and I've never heard him say, I think I need a water. So, um, well, anyways, like I said, I'll cover for him while he figures out his uh, biological problem. I was just so choked up by your words, Cena. <laughs> I know, man. Yeah. I have that effect on so people. Eloquent. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask broad strokes because uh, we kind of breeze past, and rightfully so, we got more important things to discuss. But when you said, why hasn't it arrived? Like, why hasn't technology been adopted? Um, at either a faster pace or more comfortably in this industry, what your conclusions were. And you mentioned that uh, some of these people just hate technology, but I don't know if you could, I guess, expand on that a little bit more, or if you've come any further with your conclusions yeah. on why multifamily and I guess real estate it. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's um, some of that is a healthy reason to be concerned, right? You know, because in, especially in real estate, um, there are kind of two different facets of it. I mean, you look at like the more established multifamily REITs, the NMHC 500. I mean, they run a business like, you know, any corporation should run a business in the country, but a lot of the real estate in this country is not owned by those folks. It's owned by small to medium sized operators. Um, they're family businesses. They're generational wealth creators that have been passed down from, you know, mom and dad to son and daughter and so on. Uh, so while we could spend hours talking about the NMHC 500, we would be only skimming the surface of all the inventory in this country and who owns and operates it. And for those people, there's, you know, they don't have IT staff. They don't have the ability to take risks on some new piece of technology that needs somebody to be, you know, implementing it, figuring out how it plays nice with other things. And then there's a lack of knowledge of where that information is sitting. Now we live in a world where things get hacked all the time. Like who's going to make sure that we're compliant and safe. So I think some of that pause was healthy. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, through time and through just kind of, you know, the maturity of lots of the ways that people build software and then also just, you know, being easier to understand now there's a higher uptake in that cool. adoption. Well, um, I do want to come back, back around to that. Cause you, you, was it, did you say, 2007 was Propertyware. Is that about right? Yeah, we started Propertyware 2002, 2003. Uh, we 
uh, exited to RealPage in 2000. So first of all, like, was it your plan to get acquired? Like, uh, Reed and I and Nicole, I think we've <clears> mentioned before publicly, but we didn't like know what our end plan was. And one of the first conversations we had with an with an industry insider, so it was Todd from Anyone Home. He sat Reed and I down at mm-hmm. was that Optech or something. Mm, that was the. Uh, it wasn't NAA, I don't think. Was it? That was. I don't know when that was. We were someplace that we didn't have tickets. And he uh, and Elaine Williams helped us. It was like, hey, you should meet Todd. And immediately within like five minutes in this like bar we're at, he's like, so you got to make a decision. Are you going to sell or not? And we're like, dude, we just started. Uh, And he's like, it's going to, your whole foundation is built on this. So just wondering, did you guys have that figured out when you started Propertyware, what the goal was? Because seven years goes quick. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love both those people, Lane and Todd. Uh, I know Todd really well. He's got mad game and gifts and sound effects on his hard drive if you ever have a chance to get him to share it with you. Um, I actually gave that same advice to him. So it's funny. He's passing. He's he's paying it forward to you guys. Um, no, I do think there's some of that. Um, you you This industry is really interesting because uh, the venture world doesn't really come seeking out prop tech companies because they don't really understand the size and scale of how big they can get. And rightfully so, there haven't been a ton of really big exits out of this space, right? So um, for their desire of seeing outcomes happen quickly, they generally don't happen in prop tech. You know, it takes a long time to build um, these platforms that have the opportunity to really get big. So what ends up happening to answer the question is a lot of the companies that get built in prop tech generally are tuck-ins for something bigger that's a platform. So that decision is almost made for most of the people who start companies in the space is that, you know, they're tackling a point solution that needs to be built to solve a problem because the incumbents in this industry have not innovated very much for quite some time. And so their livelihood is to wait for guys like us to come up with a good idea and show that everyone's willing to pay us some some amount per door or per month and then they acquire them but the actuality of the matter is is that you know the ones who do achieve the platform can then you know really do some pretty exciting things and we saw that with real page i had the absolute pleasure for working for one of the greatest entrepreneurs i've ever known which is steve Wynn. and he uh, he's the CEO and uh, founder of RealPage, and he was able to kind of go out and acquire so many of these technologies and really kind of put together a suite of solutions that solve meaningful problems for the customer. I think, you know, if someone were to want to challenge that paradigm in today's world and kind of look at the broad scheme of what would be the next best platform and try to build something there, then, you know, you you have to go for the long haul. It's not going to happen in three to five years. It can be decades. So is that is one of the reasons you stayed at RealPage? I was just looking at your LinkedIn to figure it out. It looks like you were there another like four years or so after the acquisition. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, yeah. well, not almost, but half the length of building property where to begin with. Was it because <clears throat> that you were looking at like an education or, you know, what kept you there for four years? What'd you learn and, you know, why? Why do what you're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, some of that was incentives that were based on our acquisition. So I won't lie. You know, if, if they had handed me a pile of money, I probably would have ran right away. Um, but that would have been probably a bad idea because, you know, I learned a lot being part of RealPage. Um, you know, I remember in one of our early meetings, 
through the acquisition <laughs> process, having their team come in and doing due diligence and looking at, you know, what I thought my revenue potential was and what they knew it was because of all the ancillary things that we could have been doing that we weren't doing. So um, I think part of that is uh, the education that I got from seeing a company that had so many different ways that they interacted with the customers in this industry from the various types of properties that they manage to the different problems that they're solving for them. Uh, seeing at scale what breaks when you get really big, you know, what what's get, what gets sacrificed in terms of the customer experience, um, what gets sacrificed in terms of um, innovation. Uh, it was really fantastic. And I think what ultimately le led me to want to leave was that you, know, you make a decision as a as a person who wants to get involved with technology. If if you're there for the job or if you're there for the art of being a creator, I'm a creator. I like creating things. And the minute I stop innovating and creating things, I get bored and there could be piles and piles of money behind it. But, you know, if I can't have that joy of launching a product and watching people be happy and excited about it, it doesn't work for me. So I think that's what ultimately le led me to leave. Well, Reed, I'm curious if you, did you ever have an experience being, I'm looking at both of you guys because you guys are higher up in a corporate ladder than I ever got, but did you have an experience where you had a Steve Wynn character? You're like, man, this, I learned a lot from this operator. And then part two of that is, do you agree or kind of what Cena is saying is like, as you get larger, it's harder to innovate. So do you think there's a way to fix that, to be a real page and continue to innovate versus, you know, uh, all the other things that come with scale? That's a big question. Um, I learned a lot from all my, I guess, managers, whether it's the CEO or whether it's somebody in a VP, like, um, and it's sometimes great stuff. Sometimes it's like, I'll, I'll never do that. Right. Um, but I don't know enough about Steve Wynn and, and I, I, I'll say I never felt that entrepreneurship, like kind of development from, from anybody I worked with, uh, and seen it just so you know, I, I was in media for years and I had one stint in pharma where I was with GSK, but a lot of big companies, CBS, uh, Cox Media Group, DFM. And, uh, you know, there wasn't as much of that personality, I think, up top, just in general within media. Um, it, it's obviously big legacy, like, uh, yeah. kind of institution. And so, um, and that that's part of what I don't want to say has been their undoing, but it's caused them a lot of problems. Yeah. And then when they would bring in somebody like me, or if it were somebody like you, um, they almost didn't know what, you, what to do with you. And, uh, and then they didn't have much patience as you talk about kind of decades sometimes being required in order to really like, um, build something uh, that's lasting, that has longevity and value. And so that's another thing that, that was difficult. But as far as how uh, to fix that, um, I think a lot of these big companies, and Steve Wynn probably, I'll let you speak to that, of course, uh, recognizes that, that that's one of their biggest challenges. How do we innovate with it, with within versus just through acquisition? And a decentralized approach was, uh, the, the I guess, the most effective approach I saw. Um, you know, there obviously has to be, you know, ways to easily bubble those ideas up and, you know, kind of that conduit between um, corporate and, and where the purse strings are and then what's happening at the ground level. But uh, if you don't build it decentralized, I, I think you lose so much perspective um, and value. And uh, so that would be my biggest recommendation is whatever you do, think more bottoms up than, you know, how we're going to orchestrate innovation top down. I mean, you said it and I'll say it a different way, <clears throat> which is 
you acquire a company, you almost want to leave them alone for a little while and let them kind of have the benefit of all the things that they were starved from um, as a startup to, to grow. I will say that, you know, one of the things that we get a lot from, I've also had the pleasure not only working for two amazing CEOs, but also my partner at Excel, which is Ping Lee, uh, made a really good comment once. He's like, you know, we actually like seeing startups which are starved for capital because they get so much more scrappy and they understand how to survive through some of the the tougher challenges that you need to kind of embrace and figure out how you're going to adapt to, you know, because you don't have the money, you don't have the hundred million dollar funding that just says, I don't care. Um, so, you know, once you get acquired though, you know, you're, you're posed with a whole new set of challenges, right? You've got, maybe you have the corporate perk strings of, you know, a real page to help you do things, but now you don't have the ability just to tell somebody to do something for you that used to report to you. So there was a lot of challenges that came with that. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that sold their businesses into these types of companies, especially like a real page, um, they got the immediate boost of having access to some of the things that they really needed that were hard to uh, obtain, like the capital to do trade shows and, you know, be able to do things for their customers, like have like 10 more reps to answer your telephone calls and, you know, do things with documentation that you couldn't do before because you didn't have the bandwidth for it. But then you suffer from being able to like, uh, do the really trivial things like pull up your marketing person and say, Hey, I want to do a podcast on this. And you're just like, wait, you get in line behind the four other products I got to deal with as well. So it's a little bit challenging, uh, on, on the topic of Steve and just to pay homage to him, you know, he was able to bring in some really smart guys, um, and gals who, I mean, I look at that class of people that were, you know, at real page with me at the time that we were there, like Suki Singh, Janine Steiner, and so many others. I can't even like ramble off all their names, but we, I think we built so many wonderful relationships as we were learning. And to your point, like some of the stuff that we thought were like, God, that's not good. Someone can do this so much better. I've seen a lot of those people now graduate on to invest and also start companies like what I'm doing with Apple to kind of take those learnings to the next level and really challenge what I think is the bigger paradigms with these companies now, like the Yardies and the real page and the Entradas is like for so long, you know, the customer is like, I get everything I need from real page. And, you know, if they offer it, I'll buy it. And now, you know, it's changed, right? Because, you know, they got a crappy website from real page and now they're like, wow, there's these great companies that make beautiful websites and I can actually, you know, do things with them that my vendor won't let me do. Or, and, and it just kind of like this decentralization is creating a massive amount of, uh, I guess, like, a lot of new prop tech, but also just like a, a renaissance in technology and prop tech and people who manage properties, um, especially with what you guys do. I remember, you know, when I was starting Leastar and dealing with like the CMOs or the VPs of marketings at many of these companies, like realizing like their understanding of what was available to them was so limited. They'd be explaining a piece of technology to me that I'm like, that's been out there for ages. It's called, you know, you know, this, and they would say, Oh my God, I didn't even know that existed, but now it's totally changed. These people know what all of these, you know, horizontal solutions look like they're going and using them, but now they're faced with the added challenge of figuring out how to stitch it all back together. Um, and again, back to our earlier part of the conversation is like, they still are pretty strapped for it resources and people to make it all work. 
So a new set of challenges is presenting itself. Um, Reid and I have followed this one founder, Patrick Campbell, for some time. He uh, was one of the founders of uh, ProfitWell, which is like a in price intelligently, basically a pricing software mm-hmm. expertise. They they just got purchased, and I always thought it was really interesting. Like I remember one of his earlier interviews, Patrick was like, "Yeah, once you get bought, you it, a lot of the times." You do that because you realize that the executive team is having too many $10,000 conversations. And I just more of going to humble brag here to you, Cena, but we just had a meeting this morning where we decided we were having too many $100 conversations. So we just greenlit mm-hmm. another $100 uh, for when someone gets married. You can have a $200 gift card instead of a $100 gift card. So that just to give you perspective where Digible's at with that resource constraint, yeah. we're in the $200 yeah. field. <laughs> right. uh, well, Reed, yeah. Reed, unless you think otherwise, Cena sent us some great background on his philosophy that uh, that sort of, I guess, brought brought him and his co-founder into Aptly. So maybe go into his philosophy that then yeah. takes into like, what are we doing? What What is Aptly and what, what's the vision? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. You know, when we started Propertyware back basically in my family's garage, we were trying to build a software solution that would do everything that, you know, one site or Yardi would do. And we were building out essentially uh, a full accounting solution, a full leasing solution. It was a lot of tech to build. And I go back and I look at like how much tech we built there and, you know, how, how long it took for us to get there. But one of the things that was really interesting is like we never really, despite the fact that a lot of property management software is kind of designed to be where people do their work in these companies, it's really not a work management platform, right? Like it is not designed to tell my leasing agent what they're supposed to do today and keep them on point, nor is it really designed for the, you know, the 20 other roles in the company. So we really realized that there was a huge problem with, you know, where work gets managed and done. Um, and so we got super interested. And, and at the time, I think the label was CRM, right? People were like, I need a CRM. And what CRM <laughs> meant to them was like lead management. But as we started to peel it away and being, I mean, I was employee 30 something at, real, at uh, Salesforce, 36, I think it was. Um, but basically at that time frame, CRM was lead management. But CRM now means like the entire life cycle of what's happening with you and your customer. And so we kind of looked at all the software solutions that were available to our customers and said, there really isn't anywhere that's paying attention to that whole life cycle. Um, you, know, you get a little bit of it inside of you know leasing and then it gets hand over to property management and then it's its own thing. And then it doesn't really talk to you when you're coming back into the lease renewals. And so we felt like there had to be something that really managed that whole life cycle. And more importantly, the definition to me of what CRM was changing really fast. It wasn't so much that I was trying to do lead management. I was looking for more workflow automation because as you look at kind of what's happening right now, and aside from the fact that people are going out and buying like, you know, five different products to solve a simple problem, what we realized is that, you know, the pandemic brought a massive opportunity to the table and it really kind of like made our business make sense because you all of a sudden had a situation where all these processes that you didn't digitize before had to be digitized like almost overnight because you had no idea when people were going to be back in the office. You couldn't like ask somebody to do something and then watch them do it anymore. So the pandemic like 
galvanized this digitization process that had to happen like almost overnight in our industry. And people talk a lot about how it happened with like self-guided touring, but it happened for a lot more things around property management as well. And so we were kind of at the right place at the right time thinking about a work management platform for the industry. And our vision of that was a place where, you know, leasing teams, property management teams, whatever could come in and know what they were supposed to do. We anchored it around communication, assuming that to make that right, it had to be an inbox. It had to be omni-channel and it had to be collaborative. But what it evolved into really quickly was, you know, understanding that we had to have a place for you to host a lot of these common workflows that happen in any office from leasing to all the way to move outs and making sure that you could hold people accountable to do those tasks and understand that we're in an age now where automation could maybe do half, if not a large majority of those tasks for you or make sure that the human is doing it correctly. So that was the incarnation of Apple. Oh, do you want to pick it up reader? Oh, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I, I like what you said about like a lot of people are afraid of their jobs getting basically like automated away or roboted away. We have the same, the same confusion with Fiona, but I don't think that's realistic. And we often say like, let's take the grunt tasks off someone and let them do more. The human tasks are what a machine can't really do well right now. But do, when you guys go to market, I feel like I've probably been guilty of this, like describing you guys to other folks. Do you guys call yourselves a workflow or a work management platform? Or do you call yourselves a CRM or LMS? Because there's this challenge where if no one's ever heard of it, they're like, I don't know if I need it. Right. So if you say work, if you say work management, <laughs> yeah, you're no. basically getting the, the first, the early adopters. Right. But now it's, do you wait 10 years to like, for the industry to catch up, understand what work management is and that they need it? Or do you mask it? Maybe, um, <laughs> as you talk about tuck-ins, but right. we're a different genre of CRM or, right. dif- you know, some sort of evolved version right. of that. Um, so that, yeah, it doesn't feel as foreign. Yeah. You know, I mean, those are really good points. And I think we struggled in our first couple of years. Uh, we were out there with you guys, you know, trying to like vie for viability and um, <clears throat> people didn't know what we were. You know, I would tell them we're, a workflow management platform and they're like mm-hmm. i'm looking for crm thanks goodbye and we're like but that's part of it uh so i think to your point reed i mean we had to essentially just label it whatever would kind of get us the conversation with the customer and then when we started to talk to people and show them what we could do and i'll give a lot of props to some of the really innovative companies that you know saw it early like we talked to domain and And they came in and they were, you know, baking us off against all the traditional lead management software that's out there. And then, you know, took a pretty forward thinking leader that said, well, we can do lead management here and a lot more. And our teams can now collaborate on processes that they've, you know, never done before. They've had to like rely on spreadsheets and terrible email chains. So you're right that we're still in the infancy of understanding like what the evolution of managing work looks like in this industry, the people who are embracing it. And I mean, there's a, it's not even a cottage industry anymore. There's a very long list of consultants that are running around working with enterprise and SMB, teaching them how to document their processes and map those into places where you can make sure that they're, you know, being done by the people who are supposed to do them this has now become a thing that's separating people 
from you know the pack those people who are able to really figure out how to embrace work management and more importantly automation it's the big differentiator and it's a big differentiator because you know as a leader of any company your biggest fear is that reed leaves what happens if reed leaves we're totally hosed right but that's because they've never taken the time to actually document a process and make it repeatable and I remember when I started Propertyware, I had a investor and a good friend, Bobby Farahi, came to me and he said, man, I'm the most lazy dude you've ever met. My job is to make every job that I give to somebody so easy that a, a very low cost labor can do the job. Anytime I have to have a job description that's really complicated, I feel like I'm always beholden to an individual and ultimately my business stalls right there. He's like, ever since I started to like re-engineer those jobs where we can document them really well, make sure that I can replace a person very easily, whether it's their fault or my fault and they're leaving, it's easy to put in the next person and not see a lot of downtime. That's what's happening now. And part of that is because now we're taking mundane, repeatable tasks and we're turning them into things that maybe we can offshore uh, to a lower cost market, or we can just fully automate. And that's what's creating a huge advantage for people. So in just to be clear, aptly, you don't have to change your systems, right? Like aptly basically will work with Yardy, RealPage, whatever. And it sits on top of a lot of these other systems and stitches them together, makes it like one portal that a property manager may log into to then get all their stuff done, but also makes them more efficient because it's more user-friendly. The UX is great. Everything's pulled together into one place instead of going to four different places. Do I basically have that right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons, and by the way, like our customers who use Fiona swear by you guys. And part of the reason is because you did the same thing for your value proposition for the customer. There are so many places that they had to go to go and update all this information. And you just made it super simple and gave them a simple interface for it. But it's sitting on top of what used to be like 20 fragmented mm -hmm. workflows, right? Like different apps, different places. You got to do this. Fiona does it all. But Fiona doesn't automate it. It does some of it, but you still need a human in there. And I think this is the back to your comment about robots will replace humans. That's kind of a, it's, it's an old paradigm now, a narrative that's getting a little bit old because people now realize that, and there's a lot of data um, from Gartner and even in our own polls with our customers that are showing that people who have tools like Fiona and Apple that sit on top of the things that they had to do manually, that kind of gracefully either do part of it for them or make it easy for them to stay on task, have higher job satisfaction and kind of repurpose their time to more valuable tasks beyond just like setting those campaigns and making sure they're there to actually go drill into making sure the leasing team is actually doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I think it's, it's a really important thing to understand that we're, giving these tools not to replace those solutions, but to be a kind of a, a safety net to make sure that they're performing Yeah, well. just to step into your product mind for a second, how do you then, how does Apple think about where they begin and end? Because when you start going into workflow management, your do you ever end? Or does Apple, like if you play this forward 50 years, 100 years, is Apple like have yeah. to do everything that could possibly happen at a property or with property management? Yeah, I mean, you know, having been part of the Salesforce journey early, like, you know, we envisioned so much of what we wanted to be, but we ultimately left it up to the customer to build it, right? 
So what we've done with Apply through the course of our, you know, five-year journey that we've been on so far is that we've documented out 20 some odd workflows that happen all the time and we've templated them and we can give them to the customer and they can pick them up and run with them. But what we're finding more and more, which is really kind of the tipping point for us is that the customer sees it as a, I don't have to be a coder. I can just figure out how to build this workflow myself. And it's got a home now where I can make sure that, you know, it's connected to everything else we do. So I think, you know, the long playbook for us is to, you know, have the customer trust us like they did with a uh, Salesforce or whatnot in other industries that, that, Hey, this is a place where we can put important things that need to get done and stitch together the relationship that we have with our customer. But integral to our strategy is also integrations with all these other tools, you know, and, you know, we, we have been constantly adding them almost on a, on a weekly basis to make sure that we talk to everything that's out there. Yeah. It's a really popular space just for those that aren't aware, but like there's companies like kiss flow and all of those types that are doing this for like, kind of like non niche, like to hit everything. Right. Is so do you guys pay attention right. to a lot of those companies? Uh, because I, I do yeah. believe in, in niching down as much as you can. So just curious how yeah. you think, yeah, how you think about that and why you might differ. Yeah. What's your competitive risk of a kiss flow or whatever coming into property management? I was thinking trade. Yeah, I mean, there's, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's similar. Yeah, trade, monday.com. Um, there's a lot of products that are out there, Process Street. Um, I think the the reality is, is that that competition is really good because what they're doing, I mean, you get this too with what you build you see somebody innovate something smart and you're like, wow, that's a great idea. We can do this too. And you, and it continues to raise the bar for the customer. So if I put on my customer hat, I want lots of people doing it because that means that you're not going to get this kind of no disrespect to the, the OG property management software, but they don't care and they're not innovating. Or if they are, it's not at the pace that we are because it's, you know, for us, it's a livelihood thing to always be the solving the, the most important problem in the most efficient and cost-effective way. So those products definitely push us and they inspire us to do things better. We do believe that our strategic advantage is because we've, I mean, just the, level of effort that we have to continually invest into making our integrations work with, you know, property management software solutions that are wildly different and have different, you know, opportunities for you to integrate with. Uh, it's a full-time job that I don't think some of those more horizontal products would want to deal with. Um, they will take a more, you know, generic approach. And I think that's where we, we come in and we do it a little bit better. Well, and I'd say your moat is the fact that the big players in this space are, are still locked down. So you can't like just connect like real page to Zapier or something. Right. No. And even if you Correct. could back to the, the niche, if you look at like Airtable or click funnel or uh, sorry, click up or whatever, any of these companies, they start with templates at some point covering the most common use cases. But if Google hasn't gotten to the point that they want to start listing apartments, for, uh, for rent, like on their website, how is like a, a ClickUp or an, or an Airtable or whatever ever going to catch up to be like, oh yeah, let's now make a library for property management and have, have it built for that. So there's still, as a, as a founder, I would just, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting for both of us is we're both in our niche industry building tools that there are other horizontal products that do similar things, but we are focused on a very specific use case. Like advertising an apartment is a heck of a lot different than advertising a pair of shoes uh, in an e-commerce site, but yet there are some similarities, right? 
So I, I believe that, you know, the challenge for us is also to be mindful with, you know, our meager uh, abilities to like, we don't have 20,000 people who work here. Uh, so we have to be very smart. Like, you know, we've talked about this before, where you lay your bets on where the next smart innovation will be. Uh, and also try to iterate a lot more through the paradigms of what you're going to build. I, I mean, this has been one thing that I credit the relationship I've had with my co-founder is I come up with really big ideas and he's like, all right, we're doing this little thing. And I'm like, no, I don't think you heard me. I said, I think we should do this. And he's like, yeah, but I can build this in like two days and then we'll get that out and then we'll come back and look at it and we'll build the next thing. And I'm always frustrated by that. But then I'm like, you're, this is what makes the magic is big ideas and quick implementation and being able to rapidly prototype things that solve problems. Uh, I think that's the genius of, of our survival and probably yours too is, you guys, especially, I mean, you guys are mad scientists coming up with great ideas for new products on a daily basis, but I'm sure you're killing them off just as fast too. Well, my problem is, uh, Reed has a lot of really tiny ideas and I'm like, dude, would you just think bigger? Um, this is really uninspiring. Yeah. If I could just expand my horizons a little bit, we might be a better fit. Um, well, I, I'm curious about how you are setting expectations, how you would tell an operator to hold Apple accountable. Uh, I think it's one of the hardest things right now with all the new technology that's hitting, you know, they're, they're getting, the doors are getting knocked on constantly, right. By people like us. Right. And it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. so give us a shot for us. It might be a little bit easier. Um, but the efficiency part isn't, that's always one of the trickier things. And that's obviously a big yeah. part of that automation pitch is, you know, why are you paying, you know, this many people to do this stuff when we could build something yeah. that would do it far easier. Mm -hmm. But then six months later, or a year later, they're, they're questioning, was that investment really worth it? And so I'm curious right. how you, you're approaching the conversation, especially in such a crowded space where it's like, well, some of these systems might do some of this stuff. There are some horizontal players out there as well, but they're not as niche. So they're not going to be as effective and understand your business as well. So that all leads you to getting, you know, the opportunity, but then what are you telling them as far as what to expect, how to ultimately uh, hold, hold this investment accountable? Yeah. I mean, you hit so many like emotional points in your comments, which is like in, <laughs> in selling to multifamily for as long as I have. And also in the SMB, um, it's like an emotional roller coaster. They're so excited. We get into the product, everyone's rallying behind it. If you can get past and it's no, I mean, for the software guys who listen to this, like you get a pilot and you, you did well in the pilot and then they're going to roll out more properties. Although it's a really hard thing as a sales team because you're constantly reselling to the same customer over and over again and your cost of sales astronomical but okay you're in and now they're using you but then you know there's some point in that journey where all of a sudden it's like you almost have to like remind them where your value proposition is because it's become like old hat to them um and and i think part of where i've experienced this both as an entrepreneur startup style or being within real page is that this industry, um, and again, going back, paying some tribute to my buddy, Suki Singh, he's always like, where does the money come from for your product? You know, because if it's not clear whose budget line item it comes from, you're going to die quickly. Um, and, and there's some budget line items that seem to be more resilient than others. Like, 
you know, having been in this industry as long as I have, like anything that has to do with maintenance, I usually kind of cringe at because that guy is like the most unappreciated human being in a, in a company because he's, you know, they assume he can do his job with or without tech, mm. but you go to marketing and you're like, well, we have to give them the budget. Cause if we don't have leads, we can't grow. So I think it, you know, you're always vying for that budget. And then I also think you're also vying always to kind of stay relevant in their mind and how important you are in their tech stack. I go back to a really early day, of, early days of Salesforce. Um, good buddy of mine who, uh, you know, we talk a lot about what made Salesforce so successful was that it was the, the fact that we own the master record of the customer. Like that's where it is. You're the master record when it comes to looking at the account. It's right here. So with property management software, when we built property where we were the master record for the ledger, if you don't own the ledger, then, you know, then you can be replaced. So the closer you get to a very meaningful kind of data point that cannot be recreated elsewhere, you're not having that conversation every year. Right, Reed? I mean, it is just like, yeah, we need it. Now you may get pushed around on you know, your pricing or why you're not innovating, but you're never going to get kicked out the door. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important as an entrepreneur and for the customer to be aligned where you add that value and how it's super unique to just you. And if it's not there, then I think you're going to always have this challenge in your business of churn being kind of like higher than you want it to be, or, you know, constantly you know, spending so many resources on customer success people to get on the phone. And I remember we bought a product, uh, my new place at uh, RealPage, and they had this customer success team that would check in with people every quarter to make sure they were still seeing the value in the leads that they were sending. And I'm like, look, if you have to do that, there's something wrong with the product because they shouldn't have to have that reminder all the time. However, you know, there it's, not always a luxury you have to have a master record. So if you don't have one, then it's got to be something that is really difficult to get elsewhere. Yeah. Well, appreciate that perspective. I'm going to take this one step further, I guess. Um, for me, almost always with product, it comes down to, uh, it's, at least in, this, in the prop tech space, performance or efficiency. And you better be able to commit to one or the other, like to an mm -hmm. operator. And mm -hmm. so it's like, and with workflow automation, you assume perhaps both is right. we're actually going to see a better NOI or, or you know, mm -hmm. our payroll over time. Like, you know, we may see opportunities to, to downsize by 10% or, mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our, our leasing process has, has improved, like meaning the performance conversion rates, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but do you, in order to establish that, and you may not be going there at all right now, go through some sort of discovery or baseline or yeah. do you just have to kind of on good faith say you know through through this you will see better performance and efficiency uh that's that's tougher right i'd rather right. hear and I, I this is as you mentioned comments kind of stirring up emotions for you this conversation does for me because david and i right now have just uh kind of greenlit a few of our own investments that um you know, I wasn't able to wrestle them down and say, tell me exactly how much we're going to save or tell me how much our performance is going to improve. And it just was painful. I was like, but we still, we still move forward, but we do that very rarely, you know, and there's no guarantee. So I, I get that. And I always tell vendors that work with us, they're like, Hey, we could 
you know, if you just give us a pilot, you know, and it's like, how funny is this? This is our pitch too. Um, But being able to really articulate kind of switch costs, short, long-term ROI, performance or sufficiency. I don't think there's a common language right now in prop tech uh, that we've rallied around to, to help, um, you know, uh, the, the owners and the purse strings move quicker and get more comfortable. It, in many cases, it feels like, um, you know, everybody's kind of out there positioning it their own way. And uh, I don't know if it's realistic to ever think that there's going to be kind of almost this more standardized approach to how to vet and ultimately, you know, ROI out, you know, new prop tech. But I wish there was because I feel like we'd all move a lot faster. No, I agree. I mean, NOI is a really popular one, but it's not right for everyone. Um, The analogy I guess I would give back would be, have you guys ever remodeled anything in the home? (laughs) Doing doing it right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you take a photo of it before you started? Probably not. Right. Um, I just asked Nicole if she did because I wanted the HGTV. I was yeah. like, I want to see the before after pics. Yeah, you know, but- when we, we did the floor ourselves a year ago and we did the before and after and during, during that. But now that we're paying someone to do it, we didn't go back and like retake like a before photo of like before he started. No. Right. Like whatever he yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the funny part about it is like we are not trained as you know either business people or in our personal lives to take those snapshots because we just want the result right away and to your point reed like you can preach a result you know you go into it if you're a leader and you're doing the right systems eos or whatever it is that you use at your company you probably have some key metrics that are tied to okrs and you know what they are somehow if you can get to a discovery process with the customer and you can unveil one of those, then that's the one that you anchor on. Um, I always love companies who have those systems in place because it's so easy to say, what are your metrics? Share them with me and let me figure out how we align something like workflow automation and work management around, you know, achieving that goal Uh, with marketing and the types of tools you have. It's, yeah, I remember back in the day, when we were running um, Star, I mean, it was like you either had like a goal of number of leads that you were trying to achieve in a given month. And if they were using revenue management, then, you know, it was the goal of trying to get a slight increase in rents, whatever it was. Like if we could just get the customer to articulate it to us, then we could align ourselves on it really well. I had a, a conversation with one of our customers just to answer your question on my product where they picked a couple of metrics and I thought it was really genius. Um, without disclosing who they are, but the founder of the company is a famous quarterback and he created red zones for these different metrics. So there's a rehab (laughs) red zone, there's a leasing red zone, um, and uh, there's a marketing red zone. And basically they're tracking these numbers, which are dates when things move from one workflow to another on our system. And we went into their office at a meeting. It was really neat because they pulled up, they're like, hey, do you want to see how your product's working for us? And they pulled up the red zones and they have their target, which was like, okay, one of them said so like the target was seven days on average. And they were like below the, the target zone. They're like, these numbers are mapping to our OKRs for our teams. And they come in and every day they see this dashboard in front of them when they're working in your product. And it's a true North Star for us. And so I guess part of it, Reed, is that 
we're trying to kind of put that incentive in front of people on a daily basis. So we don't have to have that conversation with them quarterly or the, you know, renewal of a contract to say, what have you done for me lately? It's like, no, you're looking at what I'm doing for you every day. And I think products like Fiona do that easily because anyone who uses that product is like, the amount of work you'd have to go through to figure that out on your own and to kind of come up with these numbers and hit the goals. I don't know how you do it. I mean, like if I was a apartment marketer, after seeing that product, there is literally no other way that I would want to do it. It would be terrible spreadsheets. And more importantly, it's bottled up just for me. If the whole organization sees that you look great. The other thing I'll add to it is that most people are doing this because they want to share it with leadership. And if leadership doesn't have to work very hard to get that information and it's a steady flow, they just want to know everything's working right. Well, it's interesting because a lot of our clients, when we push them on a KPI, they almost get frustrated that we're asking, but they're frustrated because they know they should know it, but they don't have it. So that, or they'll give you like 10 KPIs. And it's like, well, if you had to force rank these or pick one, because you can't necessarily do cost per lead and NOI, like they, right. they could combat one another or occupancy, for example. And so part of it is like your user experience or whatever your customer experience of going through the buying process um, that you got to find your path, I guess, as, as a, as a company decide how much effort do you want to like put into like nailing them down at the beginning to save you time later or churn later. Um, one other thing I'll make before, I, uh, you know, let Reed continue on with his questioning, but, um, uh, son of a gun, where was I going? Well, let me ask you a question. Cause you brought that oh, up I know. before you switch. Hang off on, that. hang on. Yeah, go before for I forget, I'm going to forget CNS. So I better get this. <laughs> oh, no. no, I got it. A big idea. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, you know how many times we've talked about like ROI? Uh, um, there needs to be a platform that can just historically, you plug in all of your systems and it can do the before and after ROI of putting on this test. This whole like, we suffer with this internally where it's like, oh, let's run a pilot for three months. But then there's all the questions about, well, how much was seasonality? How much right. was because now we were measuring it? Like whatever. There just needs to be an all-encompassing whatever AI ML system that you plug in everything to, and it does whatever with an 80% accuracy measures the before and after and tells you it's worth it. So there you go. Now you can ask. I was actually going to ask you that question specifically, which is like part of the problem too, is when you start with a customer, you don't always have the most optimal situation. Sometimes you get thrown into a property where they, they've had a turnover of staff or it's the seasonality or the short staffed and the person has no time for you. So I think there's, it's an imperfect science and it's really challenging. Um, but you know, if there was a way to get like the optimal, you know, and I, and I think part of what I would kind of push back on you is like, I, I I'm more interested to understand, like when a customer comes to you and says like, you tell me what I should be focused mm -hmm. on. You tell me what's mm -hmm. the best property. How do you respond to that? Uh, I usually personally will go through some questions on like giving them the so the yin and yang of like, do you do you have well, like, do you have lead fatigue? Um, well, what's that? It's like, well, do you do your people spend too much time organizing leads or do they have not enough coming in the door? And it's like I take them through a decision tree process. And by that, I can be like, OK, based on your what you've now described, this is where I would put your K, like your chief KPI, let's focus on that. And then they're like, yeah, great, that makes sense. So part of it I think is almost similar to like if someone 
if we were taking money from some investor and, and Reed and I hadn't done like the Jim Collins exercises and they were like, well, could you walk me through your vision and mission? And you're like, well, uh, and it's like, well, hang on. Yeah. Just make it feel safe to then tell like, well, vision is this mission is this. Now, what do you guys think? By going through that, you're also getting their buy-in that you're an expert. One of the things you have to get, you have to be careful of though. I find myself doing this. I don't know if you do read, but Reed and I like just through curiosity, we'll find a bunch of holes in someone like just their conversation. And if we're not careful with that, they all of a sudden they're like, great, I'm going to go fix all this stuff before I move forward with you. And that's also not what's best for them. One, it delays the sale for one year, two year or ever, because they never get to it. Or two, um, they, um, aren't they better off working with us than not working with us, even if it's not perfect. And so that's, uh, that's how I think of it is a lot of times it's like, sometimes I have to stop myself from from making them realize their house is on fire because I don't want them to, to get basically too gun shy about moving forward with something. Or, or because of how sophisticated you can be like scaring them that it's too much mm -hmm. tech. Right. I mean, we're a victim of this when I, you know, I'm like the worst guy to do a software demo for a customer because I'll show too much. And the reps are like, don't, don't get on the phone with my customer. You're going to just get them super scared. Where, you know, you could have had them with the simple, you know, click these two buttons and you're done. Your Google listing is all up to date. You know, all of a sudden you've got Reed over here doing like a 20 minute demo on like how you can parse <laughs> words for fair housing stuff. And they're like, whoa, dude, all I just want to make sure is my listings right on Google. Uh -huh. So I think, you know, um, th this goes back to that early comment. The industry still doesn't have people who like geek out on tech, right? They're mo mostly terrified of it and have had really bad experience with their vendors, uh, assuming that once they're up and running, they're not going to care about them. So I think there's a, you know, there's a, a value in keeping it simple in the proposition too. Yeah. Well, David mentioned the, the Jim Collins stuff. So we, we've read all those books and you may or may not be uh, an, an advocate or supporter of, of some of those uh, ide ideas or disciplines, but um, one that's not original to, to Jim Collins, you know, when you read these entrepreneurship books, building great companies, talk a lot about, you know, be careful with, with distractions, um, getting too ambitious, maybe too confident, you know, about what you can and can't accomplish. And uh, so you have to stay grounded, stay focused, all that stuff. And uh, in the Jim Collins book, he talks about the hedgehog um, kind of idea or philosophy of like, you know, being able to do just one thing really great. Um, and maybe 10 X your competitors and that that has such lasting power. So where I'm going with this is within your workflow automations, I, I'd love to hear, you know, what the pie chart looks like with Apple and is it, can you do it that way? Cena, where it's like, well, about 30% are really focused at, you know, accounting or at leasing or, you know, whatever that is. So I'd love to hear that. And then are you at all worried? Do you feel like you've already kind of seen as you talk big ideas and years out, you know, what ultimately that pie chart is going to look like? And that's what's going to keep you focused um, versus, well, the pandemic happened or some other event happened. And now I'm adding more slices to this pie. Uh, David and I, I'm, I'm just going to tee you up uh, and empathize, I guess, on some level. But we've I'll say gotten comfortable and, and I'm not saying we're doing it wrong, but with a lot of the new products, you mentioned fair housing, our call analytics, our predictive marketing platform, um, they all fit under the umbrella of marketing technology in multifamily. And so as long mm -hmm. as we stay under that umbrella, you know, we feel okay. 
but I don't know if we should. Um, and I think that's what our team's starting to struggle with or is not totally sure of is are we getting ahead of ourselves kind of in front of our skis, if you will, um, with some of this other stuff, even if we can keep bringing it back to what we've been talking more yeah. of is the marketing operating system. So I, well, it, there must be some similarities there with like all the different workflow automations. Doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, just my two cents on what you guys have been doing. Uh, I don't hand out compliments without them being deserved. I think you guys have really built a platform that is so different than anything else a marketing leader would have to be able to stay on top of some of the more critical tasks that they have to do. Um, I think you could spend a lot of time having been, you know, the leader of Lee star for quite some chapter of real pages history. Like there's a, a lot of other elements to that story that you can keep going with. But I think as an investor, I would say, as long as you're continuing to make that platform stronger and stickier and harder for somebody to be able to find someone else that could do it the way you do it. That's the kind of thing that doesn't get you in those conversations at the end of every year to say, why don't we just switch to X? Cause yeah, I could spin up a WordPress site. I mean, I could use Google. I could do all those other things they are cheaper, but they're not as effective. So, so I like anytime you say, Hey, I'm going to continue to stick to my platform thesis and your platform thesis is to make a marketing person highly efficient. And to your point, you can pick the right metric in there that they care about, but it comes back to driving revenue. I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's all about driving revenue for you guys. For us, it's a little bit different for us. We can, you know, we have a lead CRM system and we track leads and we help convert leads. I think what makes us super unique is that we invested a, fairly large amount of our early funding to build a omni-channel inbox that's connected to we have a code name for our product in the back end it's called hermes it's a sync engine that literally uh syncs data between property management software communication channels and any other connected partner and makes sense of it uh, it's a very sophisticated piece of technology that we're constantly maintaining it is our core strength because in at the end of the day, so much of the type of stuff that goes into workflow management, whether that means lead management or that means, you know, dealing with lease renewals, move-ins, move-outs, work orders, it all kind of comes back to the inbox somehow, you know, and if that's a phone call, a text message or an email, somewhere in there, the workflow is starting or it's being advanced through those communications. And it took a goliath lift for us to get that right and by all means it's not like a finished product either we're constantly improving it but i think that's our competitive differentiator is by knowing that if we can be the master record for the conversation then we have a place in your ecosystem and think about it who's disrupted that recently nobody it's been microsoft and google and they it's not very industry specific so our goal is to put kind of some structure around that unstructured data and give it a home. But to your point, my platform is communication as it relates to work. And when those two come together and they talk to the systems that they need to work with, it's pretty magical. I mean, we're really excited to get that connected to Fiona too, because we think there's some magic for, we have a lot of different people who use our actors that use our product, you know, marketing folks, property management, leasing, accounting. I mean, it goes all through even HR. So, but 
you know, we have a higher possibility of getting distracted than you do. Um, and it's a true challenge. And that's why the dynamic with a co-founder is so important. And also your investors and board, if you have one, because it's really easy to chase another shiny penny. I do it all the time. I'm probably not, I'm the poster child for doing it a lot, but somehow we fundamentally have like the checks and balances here to say, you know, whose budget does this come from and do they really care? Because a lot of those things, if I ask who's going to pay for it, you know, doesn't have somebody who's willing to spend money on it. Really interesting. One follow-up and then I'll turn it back to David, but um, is that core, I guess, feature um, or benefit that, that uh, Apple brings to the table also its gateway drug. Um, mm -hmm. So for us, you know, whether it's fair housing, whether it be websites, whether it be, um, you know, frankly, the Fiona planning tool, there's a lot of different avenues in. And we know what is, I think, the most kind of mind-blowing part of the, our tech stack, which is Fiona and, and the, you know, the explanations of which why she's recommending what she is. But for Apple, I didn't know within some of the other workflow automations if there's something else that regularly draws customers in, um, or is it that it's both, you know, meaning the CRM component. It's like that is our lead magnet, and it's also like that Goliath lift that is also so sticky. Yeah, I mean, a, a large majority of our customers come to us for lead management. Yeah, um, it's its connection to the inbox that separates itself from everybody else. Um, you know, we have a true bi-directional sync um, and it's super powerful in what you can do with conversations besides just attach them to, you know, a lead. It goes further than that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's important for us to understand that, you know, it's the data that's stuck in those conversations. That's really what unlocks it for people. It's like being able to be like, you know, it's such a trivial thing, but think about how often you go in your inbox and you're just scanning through like what you should be focused on. That's problem one. But, you know, Microsoft and Google have tried to solve that in their way. It's what happens when you find the thing that you're supposed to do and what you do with it. So through the use of parsing out data out of those messages and turning them into actionable follow-up steps, that's what really drives it home for us. When somebody sees that and says, holy cow, not only can I share it with somebody and collaborate on it with somebody, but I can also turn it into something that needs to get done, whether that's a follow-up. And more importantly, with leasing, that that follow-up can be fully automated, that we have automations that can be like drip email campaign style, very personalized, going to the customer, moving them along. Um, I think I said this to you guys in some of my comments before we jumped on, but, you know, it's really interesting to me, especially with leasing, how the industry went through this phase. First, it was like self-guided tours. Like we all need self-guided tours. And now people are like, I don't know, you know, like maybe that was the thing of the pandemic. Another phase we're seeing is like, oh, we're just going to use AI to just respond to all our leads. And like, we don't even need salespeople to like do follow-up. We're just going to wait till they schedule a tour. And then we're going to start selling. Like, think about this for a second. You're telling me that people who are reaching out and asking these questions about your property, all that really important interaction that's going between you and them, you want a piece of software to basically figure out how to answer it for them and then really not do any selling. Cause I mean, most of what we've learned from the products that do this is that AI only goes so far. The rest of it is all people on offshore markets that are cheaper that can answer those questions. And I, 
I find that that's just the wrong answer. I think the right answer is to kind of blend the human and the tech there and to make it feel authentic. So, you know, something that's a drip email that's trying to get you information or get you to answer a question, that's fine. But a human has to be in that phase. And the best leasing teams I've ever seen start early. They don't wait till somebody schedules a tour. Well, I've got three things that I think might fit together. I could be wrong on this, Cena, but I know we're getting closer on time. So we'll, we'll see if this works. But one is I'm curious how you think about uh, – well, yeah, let me rearrange this. A lot of what Reed likes to get at a lot of times is uh, – we've mentioned before on this recording uh, – uh, like what's going to, what's it going to look like in 2050? So basically we kind of hit a little bit of the past of their conversation, a little bit of the current, what's this look like 25 years from now? Uh, and let's just say whether what you guys are playing in or the industry, but I'm also wondering about, um, getting back a little bit to your vision. Um, what we've struggled with, I'll just say openly is sometimes we'll talk about here's where we're at today, but customer, here's where we're going. We want to show them where we're going. And then those lines get really blurred and the client starts to expect we're already where we said we're going, like the 10 year vision <laughs> like today. And then we're having to like almost backpedal expectations and say, wait, no, no, this is what it is today. We just wanted you to know where, where it's headed so that you can conceptualize better. Maybe it's oversharing. So um, wondering about how you think about the industry and where you guys play and what will be different, let's say in 2050, how that might play into how you guys are setting expectations for your clients today versus the future. And then that might lead us into hot takes, which you might know that we like to do, but uh, there you go. So I'm a huge fan of Westworld, but season four has been terrible. Um, and uh, I'm waiting for it to get better, but it's just been so hard. But I will say that like, you know, what's really weird about Westworld is it went from like the the wild West to like this futuristic world, which is bizarre to me. But um, I was watching one of the most recent episodes and the gals in her house and like she's got like, you know, bed that pops up and the window shades that kind of flutter open. And and um, I was involved in an early stage with a company called Bumblebee Spaces, which has like the modular furniture. I do think that we are moving towards a future where smaller spaces are highly efficient. Um, I think that's just happening and it's happening in so many different ways in the industry. It's a little expensive and a little bit difficult to install. Um, I think the housing stock in, in our on our planet is old. Um, you know, I could go on for hours and we should do this sometime. Like, why are we not doing more with gray water in homes? It's ridiculous to me. Like, you know, you take a shower and that water just bye-bye. Uh, or I do a load of laundry and it's like, I can't use that to water my plants. I think all that tech around making homes more efficient is probably one of the major things that's going to happen by 2050. And in the evolution of that tech that makes the, the housing stock get updated and better and smarter is going to come a whole host of technologies to monitor it and to essentially make that experience better for the person who lives in there. Uh, I had a conversation a while ago about like, you know, landlording is one of the oldest software as a service businesses. It was just, you know, happened to be a piece of uh, a physical structure, but the relationship element of landlording has always sucked. So I think in the next 30 years, you're going to see that evolve to become so much better because we're just going to have more data about how people are living in the homes and the homes are going to be way smarter that some of the stuff is going to be corrective on its own. Like when a sink is backed up, we'll know about it and the plumber will be there without you having to tell us. That kind of stuff 
it's already happening with sensors. I think there's a lot of innovation happening around sensors in homes and just going to explode. I also think on just kind of bringing it back to like how it relates to digital too. I think we've gone through this phase of like marketing being super creepy and marketing now being more functional because, you know, now I'm aware of what creepy looks like and I'm going to give you access to certain things. I think what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years is people are going to take ownership of their identity and selectively share it with people um, in an effort to get a better product, you know, or to qualify more readily. Um, we're already doing this with a product we just launched. We launched our own screening product recently. We're using open banking data to allow people in the application process when they're applying, instead of uploading W-2s, payroll statements and whatnot, just to connect and give those to you electronically. I mean, there's so much fraud in that right now. You just Google fake pay stub generator. There's 20 sites that'll do it and you will never be able to spot that. So I think part of the future is going to be owning the identity and giving access to people that do need it in an effort to get a better product and to continue to have that product. Because I do believe in landlording what and happens a lot if, I don't know if you guys own properties, but when I have a really good renter in my home, I'm willing to make investments to make the home great for them because I know they're great renters and that the market out there is no better. But that equation can change. Most people will screen a person before they move in, but never do it later. You should be doing it on lease renewals. And if that person all of a sudden doesn't look like a great renter, then you should look for another one. I think that whole evolution of like constant access to identity is a big change that's coming in the future. Yeah, great stuff. I, I, I thought you'd have a follow-up on that because he hit a lot of things across other conversations we've had, but yeah, well, um, the 2050 thing that he's talking about, and clearly you're already there, but uh, for for Digital, if you talk about what people imagine in the next couple of years, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, it doesn't really challenge your thinking a whole lot. If you ask, you know, do you think Google will exist in 50 years and what will it look like? You know, that's a lot harder to answer. And so as the spirit of it is we know automation is going to disrupt every industry and technology in the world. How is it going to affect mm. us? And, and instead of being witnesses, you know, let's be proactive and actually, you know, enact or enable a lot of that change. And it starts with us just going through that exercise. My question at the end when we did that thought experiment, when we brought them back to the office was, what is the single most important skill you need to mm. develop right. starting today uh, to prepare yourself so that you can be a part of that change, not a casualty of it? And, you know, same question, I guess, you know, as you think about it for yeah. you and your staff, because that's what I think a lot of people kind of freeze up and even employers and even visionaries, because they're not exactly sure where or what to, you know. Uh, where to point them because um, it's not as simple and a lot of people right now just default to code well i guess i should be learning javascript or python or you know some form of some form of technology skill set and it's like well if you ask our engineers what they think things look like in 2050 they tell you that they're going to be right. out of a job <laughs> you know it's like low code no code's the future and who knows where that is in, in 30 years will we actually need software engineers as we need them today and and I love that they said that, um, you know, but it, it's, it's super interesting. I'm, I'm taking this no, kind of no. away from 
what I thought was some su- super interesting stuff that you brought up as far as what we might expect from the industry. Um, but then the actual, like how that work's going to get done and at what pace is super fascinating to me. Yeah. I would probably say just to bring it back to a point you just made is that there's an immense amount of data that's coming out of this renaissance of apps that are tracking all sorts of things. And I do think that the challenge is going to be how to consume that information and find the the important key variables that will change what you need to be doing in a business to correct bad trends before they happen. So the forecasting that you were bringing up earlier about like, what happens if I change my rent by X percent or what happens if, you know, my leases expire three months later, those things I've seen products that are doing them, but with so much more data now you can create some much more interesting predictions. Like what happens if I slightly change the criteria of the person I want to have live here and what type of person does that turn into as a long-term renter in here? Um, I, and we've always been fascinated about that. We did it at real page quite a bit. Um, but I do think, um, one of the really important skill sets is going to be people who are good critical thinkers. Uh, I have a 14 year old daughter and I'm trying to encourage her to get into, you know, data science thinking sooner than later, not because I want her to be a data scientist, but I do think it's really important to really understand how to consume large amounts of information and find the really key pieces of information. We do that as business leaders all the time. Like I don't go dig into the details of a business. I look for a couple of key things and then I use my entrepreneurial gut to go with it. I think those types of things go away in the future. Uh, I remember, you know, one of my colleagues at RealPage once told me like, I'm done thinking I have the answers to things. I just do a lot of really small experiments. He used to put buttons on websites that had like 4 million people go through it on a monthly basis to see if somebody would click it and would do nothing except for validate that somebody wanted to go down that path. (laughs) And I think that's what we're getting to now. We're going to have a lot of data and I think being critical thinkers and uh, data scientists is going to be the next big thing. Yeah. I want to add one thing to that. Critical thinkers and technology strategists is, is maybe a good way of putting it, or at least for me, as I think about um, the next 20 or 30 years and the skill set I'll be looking for, assuming we're still doing something like this in our employees. And I feel like me and David, and I'm going to say David more than, than me, um, is an early example of what that looks like. So you mentioned that you know, there's, we're kind of getting past the, oh, we'll automate everybody out of a job. I think you said Mm -hmm. that. And people are understanding more and more that we can and will need to kind of work together side by side, technology and humans. And that's going to give us the plus, you know, whatever, the multiplier. Um, But you have to have enough confidence, enough vision and familiarity with technology to to really know how to stitch things together or create new ideas. And that's where I think we're struggling right now. And it's nobody's fault, but a lot of what we do, um, it's still siloed. And Mm -hmm. so there, there isn't enough people that have familiarity of all of it and can say, Hey, I see a new solution that can add another 5% on performance or remove 5%, you know, as far as labor and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that, I, I feel like technology strategist is really the future of like um, a lot of industries, I guess. Yeah, I think that collaboration, I see it more happening now with prop tech leaders. Getting, like I'm a part of a CEO group that meets once a month and some of the products compete with one another. But, you know, it's more about the critical thinking, like what's the next big thing that's going to move the needle? Um, just 
to talk about it out loud and not worry about like, oh, I have this really great idea. No one else has thought of it because anybody who's built more than one product knows it. Just building it is like one tenth of the journey. You still have mm. so much more work to do. And the more people that can kind of go down that journey with you, the faster you can realize what the true right product or methodology should be. So I, I would agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. Good example. I'll say is um, the AI leasing agents. They're not really talking to companies like Digible mm -hmm. and thinking about what we could do together. And so we've had a couple of those calls, uh, actually I'd say now three or four, and there's some of the more exciting calls I've been a part of where it's like, wow, there's so much that if we just banded together mm -hmm. that we could accomplish that would help move this industry forward. And so it starts with just having the conversation, but then you also have to have people obviously on, on the phone that, or, or in the meeting that, that have enough awareness that they can connect those dots and see bigger opportunities. Well, I, I would say also the, the challenge too is, you know, when you don't have a core platform, you know, and all you are is a virtual leasing agent, it's pretty scary because you're very replaceable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mm -hmm. think you've got a much more stickiness to what you do that would be much different than a virtual leasing agent. I mean, I could argue every, every which way to Sunday that a really good team of people in the Philippines at three bucks an hour can outcompete a, you know, AI engine all day long. Um, mm -hmm. I can't make that same claim for what Fiona does, right? Like I don't, I couldn't hire a team in the Philippines to do what Fiona does. Like there's a art to that. Um, and part of that is by running a lot of data sets through something and understanding what the right suggestion should be versus like, do you accept pets? Yes or no. Like, are you open on Friday for me to come by and look at it at three o'clock? Yes or no. I mean, those are much easier, but I do think like part of the problem is that, you know, there are a lot of these point solutions that will not collaborate. The bigger guys are not collaborating. It holds the industry back to some degree. Uh, platforms aren't open. They're not sharing data. So it ultimately falls on your shoulders to decide if you want to go build that yourself or not, because they're not going to have a really substantive conversation with one of these other platforms. Um, well, that, ho hopefully that changes. I was going to hit on, I think, as you said, it's not open. I think that's the challenge with prop tech. So meaning like, um, for everybody that's in this space, because it, there's not like one seamless layer that you can just like plug into. If we have a conversation with Perk, BetterBot, Meetalese, whatever, it's like, okay, well, do we want to go in a, like work on our real page integration or does Digible want to work on its Perk integration? Mm -hmm. And uh, you have these like essential integrations you have to have because it's not easy. So whatever, the, the 20 prop tech companies that launched this year, there's more than that, I'm sure, but whatever that went mm -hmm. to NAA, uh, they all have to go build the same redundant yeah. <laughs> integration that everybody else built. Right. And so every company like Digible has done like five years of infrastructure work yeah, that totally. should have been, that it should have been a three month process, <clears throat> like plugging into one platform, as you're saying, uh, versus everybody's being our hands tied for five years until we can get the infrastructure built to then start to say, Hey, perk. And since everybody's not lined up with that, that is what's like delaying um, I'll just say apartments versus automotive versus single family or whatever. Mm -hmm. They can move faster because they have different options than us. I would 100% agree. I mean, I think the the idea of a Zapier for our, for our industry has been floated around on a lot of decks I've seen. Uh, the problem isn't the tech that needs to be built. It's the people who have to contribute. There was a time when I was involved with the MITS standard, which is, I don't even know if you even know what that is. 
but um but that was like a shining moment for the industry because everyone was like yes we have to solve this problem let's create one standard and everyone sticks to it i haven't seen that happen since and i think we need more of that but to answer how i think it gets solved i think the customer drives that honestly i think more and more the customer like give me my data i don't care what your business model is you either give me my data or i i cancel is the best way to do it you know at real page one of our strategies was always to have the customer uh you know go to the vendor and say you gotta give us my data or we're gonna go and it worked all the time um so you know i think if the customer has a, a stronger interest in making that happen the vendors will have to comply mm-hmm well, uh, I do think we're going to need a part two before 2022 <laughs> is up, but this was a really interesting conversation for me, Sina. Yeah. Um, if folks want to learn more about Aptly uh, or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? I can go to getaplyaptly.com uh, and you can reach out to us at help at com if you have any questions. But um, yeah, like I said, much like you guys were... We're out there innovating and working with companies all the time. Um, it's really easy to have a conversation with us and maybe to our detriment. You know, I think both of us have a, a steep desire to really partner closely with customers. Maybe that gets harder over time, but we're definitely in a place where we, we work closely with our customers. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting. Everyone should try to just at least go get a demo because it just will make you think differently about how you're running your business. So anyways, thank, thanks for time, Cena. We'll definitely get with you before. Well, real quick, you know, as we know how to get a hold of you or they do now, but what's the perfect customer for Apple? We didn't ask you that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we, we service the SMB and the multifamily industry at the same time. Um, that's part of the elegance of, you know, we work with some people who are, you know, small, less than 10 user teams. And we have people with several hundreds of users and, you know, we try to make it self-service for the smaller guys, uh, and, you know, try to do the more handhold white glove service for the, the larger enterprise customer. Yeah.